0: Our reading today is from Genesis 1, chapter verse 1 through 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Father God, thank you for bringing us into your house today into your presence. Would you send your spirit, Father, to open the eyes of our hearts and that we see you as our good God and creator, Father, and as son, the, your son seated at your right hand as uh, victorious and reigning over it all, Father. Um, let us see him glorified and beautiful as our redeemer and savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
1: Thank you, Christian. Maybe you've heard the phrase, a place for everything and everything in its place. There's a friend of mine, his name was Chris. I'll save his last name so as not to incriminate him in any way. He would leave his socks all over the house. And his mom, when she saw them, she would say, Chris. A place for everything and everything in its place. Now, when she said that, of course, she was speaking to the idea, the reality of order or organization. uh, Of recognizing that there is purposes and intentions behind everything that there is. And we must recognize that there is a place for everything. And everything is in its place. That's why we love a clean home. And we love it, or I love it, when my books are just the right order on the shelf. And my desk, which is very rarely clean, is actually clean. And the candle is burning and the cup of coffee is hot. And I've got a new pen, maybe a new journal, that I'm going to begin to work through as I read a new book. Or an old book, newly read. A place for everything and everything in its place. That sense of being at home. That everything just fits the way that it ought to. In many ways, that's a summary of Genesis chapter 1. It's a recognition that God, in the created order of Genesis chapter 1, makes a place for everything. And he puts everything In its place. It helps us see, as you probably heard in Christians' reading of the narrative, the unfolding of each of the creation days as they build from one to the other. Uh, Being sure that the spaces created and the things created for those spaces are, are just as they ought to be a place for everything and everything in its place. Uh, the symmetry of the reading, the, the repetition, the, the sense of the, the language and the building and the momentum, even a sense of the escalation. That day two builds from day one and day three builds from day two. And the sense that we're going somewhere. And each moment that we're going somewhere, we're getting closer and closer to a place for everything and everything in its place. The recognition is, though, when we read the pages of Scripture and we look at the unfolding of the Bible, we realize that stuff, over time, gets out of place. It begins in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. All of a sudden, the way in which God had created everything and the order in which God had created everything is now all disordered or disarrayed. Oh, it still has a rightful place. It's just not there anymore. It's out of place. It's like my friend's socks on the living room floor when they ought to be in the hamper or at least in the sock drawer. I'm thinking about socks. I got a lot of new socks for Christmas. A lot of new socks. Some really cool socks. I don't have room for all the socks that are in there. But it was really fun the other day, actually organizing my sock drawer for at least the first time in the last ten years. There are socks in there I hadn't seen for ages, and I wind up getting rid of. And for at least two and a half days. The socks were in order. A place for everything and everything in its place. When we read further into the Bible, we begin to realize that not only are things disordered, disarray, even though they're not in the place that they ought to be, that God is on a mission to get them back to that place. The reordering of the entirety of the created order. Starting with you and with me. And all of this is embedded right here in Genesis chapter 1. And so we want to look at a place for everything and everything in its place. Uh, We want to look a place for everything, but everything's out of place. And we want to look at a place for everything, everything returned to its place. Let's start with this in the creation order. As many readers have read Genesis 1 over the years and studied it, They've acknowledged, like Alexander Pope did, the great 18th century uh, English analytic poet, when he was looking at creation and then reading through some of the, uh, the passages in the Scripture that deal with creation, he, looking at it all, Pope came to the conclusion that order is heaven and earth's very first law. Now, by saying that, Pope was recognizing That when you look at the world, it's impossible to not acknowledge that order is critical, even essential. Even for those of us who are a complete mess when it comes to order. It's essential to the way in which things operate. For instance, you want your body in order. And it works sometimes in order. And if it's not working in order, you want to get it in order so that it will work in order. We want that with the environmental conditions in which we find ourselves. We want roads to be in the right places. We want oxygen to be where we're breathing. Uh, We want the things of life to be ordered in such a way that the conditions facilitate flourishing and life and abundance and, and the felt sense of, well, this is the way things ought to be. We certainly want that with planetary motion, don't we? We can't have planets bumping into each other. It's just not a good thing when it happens. And, and you've seen, you know, maybe I have at my home in my boy's room, an entire you know, constellation on the ceiling. Planets hanging down and on the sense of their orbit and how close or far away they are from the sun. And you've seen it, you've studied it, you recognize the miracle that it is that we live in the place that we live, earth. And it's perfectly situated in the place that's situated in order to have the right amount of warmth and the right amount of coolness in order for the inhabitants of this place to be able to exist in the place that they're in. It's beautiful, this order. So anyone who says they really don't like order don't even know what they're talking about. Because they like living. And living is essential for us to be able to have order. Order is essential for us to be able to live. It's not surprising then when we look at Genesis chapter 1. We see an order emerge from the text of Scripture. In fact, there's an ordering here in Genesis 1 that is unmistakable through Moses' writing and the revelation of God given to him. We see here an order of what I'd like to refer to as two triads that are given to us in the six days of creation. Two triads the first triad, it's the first three days of creation: day one, day two, and, and day three. In these first three days of creation, we see God creating, acting in creation in a particular way. We see him forming heaven and earth. On the first day, God creates light. On the second day, he creates the sky and the sea. On the third day, he creates land and its plants and its habitation. These three days are God developing Forming or giving shape to the spaces that we will inhabit. You know, before you move in that couch, you gotta have a living room. Uh, Before you have a meal at that dining room table, you gotta have a dining room. And we see God in the first three of the creation days forming the spaces. That we will inhabit. And so it's not surprising in the second triad, days four, five, and six, that we see a different particular action of God. We see Him moving from the forming of those spaces to the filling of those spaces. And in fact, there's a correspondence between those days. Day one is, is light is created, but day four, He creates the sun, moon, and stars, which is the light as it is plugged into. The space that he's created, the universe, the heavens that he has just marked out. Day two, he he created the sky and the sea. So the upward atmosphere and and the chaos of that sea that we described even last week. And then not surprisingly in day five, he puts birds in that sky. And he puts fish in that sea. He begins to now fill the spaces that he has shaped and as he's formed. Day three, he creates land. And day six, he creates land animals and he creates human beings. Uh, These are the inhabitants that are going to fill the spaces in which he has created. Uh, It's a glorious picture of the power of God as he speaks the formation and speaks The filling of creation. By simply the word of his power. He creates an environment. One day building upon another. Where all of what he intends for creation. Now has a place at which it can call home. A place for everything. And everything in its place. I think one of the things to note. And what it is we see here in uh, the scriptures. Is uh, the recognition. uh, That this. Forming and filling was seeded for us last week when we looked at verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. Some of you will remember we looked at Genesis 1-2 last week. I dug down in that mysterious text where the Holy Spirit is hovering over the deep, later described there as the waters. And we said that this deep, this this primeval vision of water or of ocean, this creation of space and and time that is prefigured and summarized there in in Genesis 1-2, had two of the most fun Hebrew words that anyone could ever learn to say. Some of you kids undoubtedly remember it because you've stopped me, a couple of you, to talk about those words. It's just fun to say. Those two words were tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. It's just little words in verse 2 that's, that are translated without form and void, or formless and void. You see, that verse 2 is actually outlining for us the agenda of the whole chapter of Genesis 1. Because in the first three days of creation, God is overcoming the tohu, the formlessness. Or the, the, the without form, he's giving shape to the world. He's making it a place, a space in which it can be ha- inhabited and people can move in and animals can move in in an environment where things can flourish. And in the last three days, days four, five, and six, he's filling those days. He's overcoming the wabohu, the emptiness, the voidness. He structured the entirety of this creation narrative along those two simple Hebrew words. Which I hope indicates to you the beautiful design of Genesis chapter 1. That this work of art, this creation, this making of God by the word of his power deserves... A literary retelling that is also a masterpiece. Not only is this creation a wonder in its glory and in its interdependencies. and its shape and in its abundance and filling. But the revelation itself that recounts that creation is also a literary masterpiece. That he has structured a world that is shaped and to be filled. As the psalmist will later say to be full of his glory. Now, it's not just these six days, though, even though we're not looking today at the seventh day. I think it's important that you see in the structure of this narrative that this creation story is meant for you to both see the order of everything in its place, but also the perfections, the goodness of the created order in which he is made. And I believe that's why, at least one of the reasons why, We'll talk more on January the 28th when we gather here in the sanctuary to discuss various creation views. Don't miss it. It'll be fun during the Sunday school hour. We'll talk more about the creation days then. But one of the things we can say for certain about the seven-day ordering of creation is that God is structured it according to a week to describe its completion or its fullness or its perfection. Uh, We see that with the numerical consistency from day one to day two to day three to day four to day five to day six to day seven, this restfulness. That God ultimately ends with as he looks back and gives a benediction, as it were, over what it is he's made. And he says it is all very good. It is to acknowledge that God has come to completion in that. And he has structured the whole narrative along the literary reality of a week. As it follows the historical consequence of what's revealed. Is remarkable because seven is critical in the Bible. You remember Jacob, he served seven years to Laban. In order to bring to completion, what marriage with Rachel, and after those first seven years, he got exactly what he wanted. Not so much. He he got Leah instead, and then he had to go back and work seven more years in order to get Rachel. What? Why seven? Why is it's number of completion? Fulfillment. It, was, it, was a, it was a part of even the pattern of jubilee, as you might remember in the Old Testament. The ability to relieve debts at the end of seven years, where the land itself could rest, where people could be relieved of their debts. It was as if all of creation is moving to the completion of a seventh day. Well, we see that imagery in Pharaoh's uh, vision. We'd, we're told that he has seven fat oxen, Uh, that extend over a period of time to describe the fullness of a season of abundance that's going to happen in Egypt. And then he has seven starving uh, oxen that he dreams about. And Joseph interprets those as the the end and the duration of a season of famine as he's describing the provision of what will be for the people of Israel. Uh, You remember when Joshua instructed the people of Israel to go in and take Jericho? Uh, You remember it was for seven days... They were going to walk around Jericho. And on the seventh day, they were going to walk seven times around Jericho. And on the seventh lap around Jericho on that seventh day, there was going to be seven priests. And those seven priests were going to blow seven trumpets. And once they blew seven trumpets, the walls were going to come down. And the completion of the victory of Jericho would be had. It's no surprise that the number seven shows up more than 50 times in the book of Revelation. Uh, the final book, the closure of this redemptive story. We're in the opening chapter and we see the image of seven. It's not surprising that in the final chapter we see lots of sevens because the final chapter is the completion. It is the perfection of the redemptive story. It's the seven letters to the seven churches, uh, the seven spirits gathered around the throne, the seven lampstands and the seven stars with the seven seals and the seven angels. Each of these images in some way, shape or form giving A picture of the fullness and the completion of God's redemptive plan. Whatever it is that we mean by the days of creation, which we'll explore together. We certainly see the text is telling us that this creation is complete. It's perfect. It's good. We have God's rhythm through each of those days as he steps back from that which he has made and he declares it to be good. And on that seventh day, in a state of rest, as he looks out over what he has made and he says it is very good in the superlative. It's in that moment where we're beginning to see the sense of fulfillment or fullness of what creation is to be all about. Now, many scholars have... Uh, rightly noted and maybe most fascinatingly, Umberto Casuto, a Hebrew uh, professor from the late part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, not discovering anything that's not necessarily been discovered before, but his commentary, being a Hebrew scholar, incredibly helpful on these things. He being raised in a period of time where people did not believe, that scholars did not believe, in the university of the historicity of the account of Genesis chapter 1. It was argued it was just merely myth. It was merely fable. It was, it was just a way of describing things. And Cassito just couldn't believe it. So he began to read the scriptures and he saw, written as it is, certainly with imagery and poetic form, it's written in the style of prose and of narrative. And he understood that there was historical basis for what is happening in Genesis 1. Yes, it's epic in dimension, Oh, it's high and lifted up with regards to its literary quality. But it's not leaving the reservation of history. It's rooted in what God wants us to know is true fact about the nature of creation. And so Casuto began to rummage around into the richness of the Genesis narrative. His commentary is over the whole book, but he spent a lot of time in Genesis 1. And one of the things that he noted was that there is a glory in this numerical consistency. He noted that the first three nouns in the first verse of Genesis 1, you know which ones they are. They're the most famous nouns in the whole of the narrative. God, heaven, and earth. He, he, he believed, Casuto believed, that Genesis 1 was primarily about those three nouns. Do you agree? God, heaven, and earth, probably in that order. The most important thing the Bible's trying to tell us is about God and what ultimately takes place in heaven. And how it relates to what it is he's going to accomplish on the earth. He saw this as not merely the beginning of the book of Genesis, but the beginning of the emphasis of the Bible itself. Cassudo understood also that when you begin to look at and really examine the way in which those terms are used in Genesis chapter 1, he began to realize that all of them are used according to multiple of sevens, believe it or not. That almost there's a, a literary complexity to the nature in which they're ridden. In other words, the, the name God is, is said more than 35 times, which is seven times five. Heaven is, is, is mentioned 21 times, which is seven times three. And earth is mentioned 21 times, which is also seven times f- three. Now, now, we might not think too much of that and go, well, that's an interesting uh, coincidence. If it if it weren't for the case that when Casudo began to count the words in the first two verses, he realized that in Hebrew, there's seven words in the first verse. And in the second verse, there's 14 words, which means that the first two verses, there's 21 words, which the summary of creation is put in completion of the number of seven. Well, you might be a coincidence as well, but then Kasudo looked at the seventh paragraph. The seventh paragraph in the creation narrative, guess what is about the seventh day? In the seventh day of creation, there are three sentences, each with seven words. And in the middle of those seven words, there's three words, the seventh day. Well, lo and behold, Casuto thought that might be helpful. He said, maybe God is writing this. Maybe God is revealing this. Maybe the beauty of this narrative with regards to its consistency, both with regards to its retelling, but also to the typology of the numerals which are given, is pointing to the fact that this creation is a work of art and its literary revelation is a masterpiece as well. Casudo believed and I believed many others as I saw from Kidner this week. I saw from, uh, from, from Selhamer this week. I saw from Waltke this week. I saw from Calvin this week. Oh, I read it all all of them seeing in the glory of this creation narrative that we are being taken to creation in order to trace it to the God of creation. That the glory of what he has been made, that has been made, is to be traced to the glory of the one who made it. That it is to increase within us a wonder, love, and praise for Almighty God as we see his glory and his wisdom and his power displayed. I mean, when you think of the bigness of creation, as I was thinking last night, I couldn't help. I was reflecting on this passage. I went out to my car because I'd left something in my car, and there had been a a clearing last night from the clouds. It was freezing. I didn't stay out there very long, but long enough to just glimpse up into the sky and to see uh, the stars. Uh, Dotting the horizon, as you can imagine, as I've been thinking about stars and expanses and firmaments and all kinds of things this week, reflecting on this passage, that I took in the vision of those stars in a more particularly worshipful way than I might have otherwise. Because I'd been focused upon the God of Scripture and His creation narrative, it allowed me to engage Scripture in such a way to know that God in His dimension created it all. But then I began to think, Vera, one of the closest stars to us, It's 25 light years away, which in space years is nothing. It's really close by. If, I don't know where Vera is, but if I had looked up and spotted her and her light I had perceived, it would mean that for that light to travel from Vera to me would take 25 years to get to me. Which means that the light that I see when I look at a star, no matter how far away it is, is the past light that that light, that star had given. The star may be gone, but the light from that star is still moving towards me. At light years, which means that we're always, when we look at the stars and we see their light, we're actually looking at the past. Because the light, it takes so long to be able to get to us. Now, when you begin to just try to wrap your mind around it, which you can't, what do you see but an altar at which you're supposed to worship a God who's much larger than the creation that he made? Or to think about the precision of creation, not just its bigness. I mean, our earth is about at 23 degrees slant, right? You remember the globe? In the globe in your house and how it's awkwardly slanted. It, it moves a little bit between 22 and 24 degrees, but roughly around 23 degrees. You know, if it wasn't at 23 degrees, uh, we would have significant change in our temperate zones. Uh, the, the margins of the world would become frozen. Ice would begin to pile up. We wouldn't be able to plant many of the plants to be able to survive because of the coldness. It would be an enduring uh, winter, which means that, that animals themselves would die and, the plant, and this planet would become um, more or less in, uninhabitable because of the nature at which that tilt would put us closer both to the moon and to the, to the sun at the wrong times. Now, there was a theory that the earth got hit by something like Mars several billion years ago. And it tilted it at the 23 degrees, which made it inhabitable, which ultimately became our moon. But I'm going to go with creation. It just seems actually more plausible to me. That something of this magnificent design, somebody was involved with. Some being was behind. And the being is God. The God of Genesis chapter 1. Do you see, He has made everything in its place. And He has put everything in the place that it's supposed to be. But the recognition is, even as I think about Vera, or I think about the angle of the earth, or could list any number of things, or you could list any number of things that would draw us into the glory of the created order. The fact of the matter is creation, in many ways, doesn't cause us to worship but it causes us pain it causes us to groan uh, paul puts it in the language of the pains of childbirth even uh, looking for its consummation looking to return to to get back to that which what it was originally designed i mean all you have to do is look at the mudslides in california and see the world crumbling apart at the seams or the wildfires that took place not long ago or, or that even happened a couple of years ago here in, in East Tennessee. All, all you would have to do is look at the satellite image of the British Virgin Islands after Hurricane Irma came through. They were beautiful with foliage and now they're brown and dead. This same creation that was rightly ordered and all of it functioning according to the flourishing of the inhabitants of whom God has made is now a creation in the fall that is broken and in some ways descends back into the tohu wabohu, the breaking apart, the formlessness, the uninhabitable, the sense of wasteland. You know, one of the things that's interesting. When you begin to read through the text of Genesis chapter 1 and and really zero in on some of the language, I didn't see anybody really giving much treatment to this, but I think it's fascinating. When you look at Genesis, one of the words that's core to the activity of God's creating is this language of separate. You know, He separates the light from the darkness. He separates things. He, He separates the waters from below, the waters above. He separates the waters below to the land. He, he separates the, uh, the land animals from human beings. He, he, he distinguishes things. He, he puts things in their place. He, and as he, as he does so, he's ordering things. He's putting things where they're rightly supposed to be. He's showing these are the places where they are supposed to, to, to live. I don't know if you've noticed, but fish don't do well on land. And trees don't do great in the ocean. It's the darndest thing. It just doesn't work. Why? Because there's a sphere for it. There's a boundary marker for where in which it flourishes, which helps us make sense for when we see the world in one sense almost attacking its inhabitants, almost fighting back even even against itself, that something has gone wrong, that it begins to cross its own boundaries and it creates destruction This makes a lot of sense, though, if you can think about the very core of the fallenness that is the reality of which we live. And you go back to that original story of our fall. You remember, we're in the Garden of Eden, and God's walking with us in the cool of the day. And He sits there in the midst of the garden. You know what He does? He separates something out, He creates a boundary. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, you don't live in eating this one. You're like the fish on land. You're like the tree in the water. You don't live in eating from this tree. Now I've given you all of the other trees. But this is your boundary marker. If you eat of this one, what will happen? You'll surely die. And so what did we do? Well, we did what is the very definition of the word sin. One of the words sin that's used in the scripture is the word trespass. We went past the boundary. We went where we shouldn't go. We walked what wasn't open to us. We weren't given that to be able to walk in. Don't you see part of what the scripture is actually showing us is that morality is built into the formation of creation. That when we walk a certain way outside of accord with God's design, we inherit death and it's disaster. You, You know this feeling, walking out of accord with God's will. You know this experience of walking years on end or months on end unrepentant of your sin. Life gets better, right? No, you begin to look and smell like something's dead. Because you're living outside of the boundary of your habitation. You're trying to be a fish on land. You're trying to operate outside of the construct in which the Lord has placed you, which is where you are most free, the place that you were designed to be. But Adam and Eve in that moment desired to be God, they didn't want the boundary of what it meant to be man simply made in the image of God. They wanted something more. And so they went for the boundary marker, despite the fact that God had said, don't eat of it and you will surely die. And in that moment, they just, they didn't just break a law, friends. They unleashed a power. A power in the world. And in the unleashing of that power, the world itself came under the curse of God, as we will look at in Genesis chapter 3. So much so that we could say it this way. When you see Hurricane Irma wipe an island off the map in the Gulf of Mexico, you're seeing the fruit of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because you know what you're seeing? You're seeing water. That has its boundary, come ashore and take over something that's not its. It's not for it. And you're seeing the, the tohu and the wabohu, the the breaking down begin to take place. When you see a funnel cloud drop down out of the sky to destroy the earth, you know what should ring in your head? Clouds shouldn't be on earth. Destroying things. That's not their boundary. It's not where they were made for. They're crossing their boundary because they're actually bound up in the curse of the boundary crossing that we've already done when we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, we've unleashed a power in the recognition of this. When we cross over to that which should have been separated out from us, what actually happens is that comes... And it begins to wield power against us. And it runs much deeper than just creation. A fire that's wonderful for cooking and for warming. But boy, when it starts ravaging a forest, it's outside of its boundary. What really happens though, and deeper and more profound, is that when we cross the separation... From what we should not have crossed. The things that we should have been with. And should have been in union with. Are separated from us. See that's what happened actually to Adam and Eve. When they crossed the boundary of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And went to where they should not go. God, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, drove them out of where they should have been. The Garden of Eden. We're told at the end of Genesis chapter 3 that He sends them out of the Garden stronger. He drives them. Says it twice. Meaning to say that not only did they cross the boundary, but now they've lost the one thing that they need to be in union with. Which was God Himself, which is why Isaiah can say in 59:2, your sins have made a separation between you and God. And the rest of Scripture is groping for, searching for, unfolding towards how the separation that has happened between us and God can once again be fused. And we see it, of course, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, friends, it was there when Jesus crossed the boundary of heaven to earth. We had tried from earth to get to heaven through our own machinations, but he, in grace, came from heaven to earth in order to redeem us. He crossed that boundary. And do you know what happened when he was on the cross? He took up the reality of the separation that we were supposed to experience. You know how painful it must have been for Adam and Eve that day when God drove them out of the Garden of Eden. It pales in comparison to the separation that Jesus felt on the cross when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the only one that should have never been separated from God. And he is the one who willingly in love was separated from God so that we wouldn't be, so that it would be bridged, so that the world in all of its disorder and the mess that is your and my heart could be in union with the one who made us and could live forevermore in what will be the rightly ordered new heavens And the new earth. We know this is the story of the gospel because Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember at that time you were separated from Christ. You should have been with God. You should have known Him. But at that time, in your flesh, in your sin, Gentiles, you were separated from Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's an amazing truth. That Jesus went through the separation that you and I should have experienced and did experience in time and space and history. He closed the gulf. And in you and through you, now through the power of that gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, He is reordering your life and through you, He's beginning to reorder the world. You are, in very real sense, the pilot program, the beta version. Of what He is doing in the spreading of His kingdom through the power of the gospel in which He will complete upon the day of His return. Do You see, it was Christ's willingness to undergo that separation that led ultimately to the fact of the matter at the end of times when we see the ultimate separation. Hell itself. When at the judgment, the Lord will say to those who do not know Christ, I never knew you, depart from me. And for those of us who do know Christ, he will welcome us, guess what? Into the rest, into the seventh day, into the completion of everything that he has been doing from time immemorial past. Into the eternal future. Do You see, this is the story of the gospel. And it's embedded in the mysteries of Genesis Genesis chapter 1. Because the lamb was slain, the Bible tells us, from before the foundation of the world. None of this took God by surprise. He didn't have to go, "Uh uh-oh, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Plan B. He had built into the fabric of creation the reality of our redemption. And he has given us today a reason for hope. Because right now in this room, every single one of us can spot areas of our life where there is chaos, where there is a mess, where there is sin, where there is disorder, where there is the the reckless abandon that's wielding destruction on ourselves and on others, in our faithlessness and in our sin. And what the Bible is teaching us is that God is about in the cross bringing about order and restoration and repentance to that which is right now so messed up in your life. Take comfort in this, friends. If the cross, the worst of all separations and the grossest and the bloodiest of chaos and mess that you can imagine is the place where God does His greatest work, then there is no mess in your life that He can't clean up through the power of that cross and bridge whatever separation and loss and mess there is right now. And today in the power of the gospel, He wants you to believe that. As you walk into this year and you see areas that you think that'll never change, There's no hope there. I've done the best I know to do there. As you tell that false narrative to yourself and you believe more of your internal voice than the word of God, in this moment God is saying to you, that's a lie. Don't belittle the cross of my son. If I can bring the best out of the worst, as it happens to my son on the cross through the separation, the pain that he felt, what do you think I can do with you? And so the question in the days to come will be, what is the weakness, the struggle, the difficulty of your life right now that He is going to turn into a place to show His glory? Where's it going to be? Today, submit yourself to the order of the walking in and through and with Christ all the days of this life until we get to the life to come. Keep walking with Christ by faith. And all the loose ends will be tied up when you get to the seven of the rest of heaven itself. Father in heaven, I've asked that you would do this in whatever way it needs to happen in the lives and the hearts in this room. And you know so much better than I would know and even better than we would know about ourselves. We wholly and completely trust you. With only the process that you can bring, create and recreate us in Christ. And grow us into his glorious image until we are fully and completely captured by his righteousness. Consummated as it will be at the end of time when you invite us into your rest. Lord, let this message settle on us. And let it renovate us, create spaces, and fill us with your grace. So that this truth might not be a moment of reflection on a Sunday morning. But might become a place at which to stand the rest of our lives. Come Holy Spirit and hover over us. And bring forth life in the way that only you can. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.